from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a gorgeous, picture-perfect fall Wednesday morning. Cade Massey this morning hosting with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Cade. How are you? I'm doing fine. We are two of the four collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball. Shane and Audie are out and about this morning. Eric and I are going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join us. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Live during the show, we respond to those sometimes. Also, if you're listening, we're replayed four or five times over the course of the next week. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern right now, you're catching a replay. It's still a great way to reach out to us. We collect those during the week. You can follow us on Twitter. At W Moneyball. At W Moneyball is our handle up there. Tweeting about sports analytics over the course of the week. Staying on top of our guests, for example. We've got guests. We've got we've always got guests. We have two fantastic guests from the world of sports analytics coming up. First at the bottom of this hour, and then the second at the top of the next hour. Open lines between now and then. It's me and Eric talking all things sports analytics. Eric, as usual, I'm curious what has caught your eye. Well, first of all, Kate, it's great to have you here. As uh, our fans know, it was two hours by myself last week. The voices in my own head got to come out on the air, so it's good to actually talk to someone but my own head last And that was uh, interesting. Was strong strong work, Eric. It was very fun to do also. But no, let's do it once every three years. I'm, I'm happy with having you here. Um, I actually thought, you know, obviously there's a big deal going on in college football right now. And I thought, you know, you have talked about in the Massey Peabody system, you guys, if you'd like, modeling the committee. I thought there was an interesting signal sent by the committee. We talk about signaling both in statistics, economics, behavioral theory all the time. I thought it was an important signal that Auburn was placed at number two. And the reason I say that is because it's a two-loss team that was placed at number two. And so here's how I have it. Kate, obviously, you guys have probably run the numbers on the Massey Peabody system. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So here's how I think the chaos has now settled itself. I think most people would agree the Clemson Miami winner is going to be in the playoff. In all likelihood. I mean there's a It's not a hundred percent chance if Miami were to win the game. That's right. But let's just say it's likely that the Clemson Miami winner is in. Very. Right. Very likely. Do we agree it's also very likely the Georgia Auburn winner is in? I think that's a hundred percent. Okay. So that's a hundred percent. Do we also agree if Oklahoma were to win their game, they're probably a hundred percent to be in? You know, more or less, yes. More or less. Okay. So now, do we also agree that if Wisconsin were to win their game, they're extremely likely to be in? I mean, frankly, we'd make them the, we think they're going to be the number one seed if they win. Okay. So now, all of that says we know what happens if these teams win. But now we have the interesting question. Yeah. What happens if Ohio State beats Wisconsin? Which is, the of the four things you just named, the one that's... Least likely that to happen is Wisconsin winning. So the most likely wrinkle in the picture you're painting is Ohio State beating Wisconsin. Right. And now let me get back to my signaling question. So obviously the committee is willing to put a two-loss 
Auburn team above even a one-loss Oklahoma team and a no-loss Wisconsin team. So why couldn't the committee, let's imagine OSU has a 2014 experience where they beat Wisconsin 59-0. to What's to stop them from putting a two-loss Ohio State team ahead of a one-loss Alabama team? So uh, that's my, my signaling point. They didn't just put Auburn in. They put Auburn at number two. So they're clearly willing to put a two-loss team ahead of a one-loss team and a zero-loss team. Why can't Ohio State jump Alabama if they have a convincing win over yeah, Wisconsin. It's, it's it's a nice point because, of course, they would also have going for them that they just won a conference championship. And we know the committee cares about conference championships. How much is an open question, but that's going to be a factor that arrives next week for the first time and allows them some wiggle room, basically, on what they do. You're pointing out that, well, um, they've got that working in their favor, but now they have this precedent of a two-loss team higher than. Now, to be fair, that two-loss team just beat Alabama. So and it's beat pretty... the number one team two out of the last three weeks. I mean, they've that's beaten right. the—it's no... it's, it's different than Ohio State beating Wisconsin. I agree, that's different. But I was just thinking that, you know, is, Al- is Alabama's only route hoping either for an Oklahoma loss or a Wisconsin loss? I think we'd agree with that. Alabama's not in if Oklahoma and Wisconsin win. I agree. Yes, absolutely. Not just me, but in our models of the committee, that's that's true. We we have a the way we think about it is we put them in a pecking order. So there are nine possible nine candidates here. There are nine teams still in the run. Huh, I have only eight, so I'm interested to hear your nine. Well, TCU oh, okay, has a, you have has TCU. a remote okay. chance. So we're saying basically the five teams that are playing for the the conference championships, less Stanford because they have three losses, and um, less somebody else because. We've, we should have 10, and we're going to add Alabama. Who am I missing? Okay, I'm going to set that aside for a second. We've got nine teams in the running, and... Well, I assume whoever's playing Oklahoma in the Big 12. TCU. Oh, that's TCU. Yeah, that's TCU. So maybe both Pac-12 no, we, teams? No, we drop, we drop USC. Exactly. Yeah, both exactly. Pac-12 teams USC aren't making it. USC is, is essentially 0%. So we've got the other four conferences and Alabama. So we've got eight teams plus Alabama. We put them in a pecking order, basically. We're projecting the committee. In order to run this thing all year, we've had to develop a a model of the committee, which is hard. It's harder than football because they're less consistent than probabilities are in football. So we just have a pecking order that says if Wisconsin wins out, they're going to be the highest in the pecking order, and then all the way down to TCU at the bottom. And we can go a little further than that because even though that's a rank ordering, there's a lot of uncertainty. Our model does not predict the committee with certainty, and so we think it's ordered – Wisconsin and then Georgia and then Clemson. But, you know, it's a little unclear. Georgia and Clemson are very close in our pecking order, actually. So if Georgia wins and Clemson wins, we think the committee is like 55 percent more likely to place Clemson. I mean, Georgia above Clemson. But that's pretty close. So they're higher in the pecking order, but it's close. Compare that to, say, we think Clemson 76 percent more likely to be seated above Oklahoma, who's who's next in the pecking order. And so you, where, does, where do you guys have it? Let's play the scenario that we just talked about. Clemson and Miami winner, let's assume they're in. Georgia-Auburn winner, let's assume they're in. Let's assume Oklahoma wins. Yep. If, if Ohio State beats Wisconsin, how do you guys, how is your model have it? Do you have Alabama in over Ohio State? I assume so, but by how margin margin? You know, so they are, they're way down our pecking order. This is, Who is? This, Alabama's seventh and Ohio State's eighth. But the gap is important here, and there is a gap there. So we we think, based on history, based on the way committee has treated wins and losses, strength of record, all those kinds of things in the past, that they will take Alabama 84% of the time. 
So we we think it's it's pretty strongly favoring Alabama. And um, that's just the numbers. You know, that's not our opinion and things could change. And that's based on average outcomes in that Ohio State-Wisconsin game. One well, remember have... I just said my – I was hearkening back to 2014. Let's imagine I, – I don't literally mean 59 to nothing, but that was the score no, in exactly. 2014. Exactly. What if the score's 30 to 7 Ohio State? I, I agree entirely. And, and by the way, that could happen because they could run these guys. And the bigger the win there – and they've got all the motivation in the world. They know that they're up against this. And they know they have to run up the score. That, that's right. That's right. And and they're capable of it, and it could happen. And And – I, I haven't dug that deep in our numbers. It's in our numbers because this 84% is based on the expect, the average of all the outcomes, which is essentially the expected outcome. But Ohio State could win by 30. And I, at that point, you're talking about a Big Ten champ. You're talking about Ohio State finally getting a, a really good win, an impressive win. They've got a couple pretty impressive, but this would be beating a, what an undefeated, maybe not that strong, but undefeated Wisconsin. And then if they do it in big fashion, it becomes – more difficult to see the committee putting Alabama over them. Well, either way, you asked me what caught my eye in sports. I mean, certainly, you know, we had a big weekend. Alabama and Miami lost. That that made a big. Now we could argue. A lot of people argue it didn't really affect Miami in that way. I mean, Miami beats That's Clemson. Right. They had a game I think to give. They had a game to give, and I think you would have agreed. Let's imagine Miami had beaten Pitt. Would you still say that if Clemson beat Miami? Would Miami have made it? I think most people would have said no anyway. In other words, they have to beat Clemson to win anyway. It didn't really affect them in the sense of they didn't really have that much of a buffer. Like they could be a one-loss team and get in if they lost to Clemson. I don't think most people believe that. It would have been. I mean, it wouldn't have been zero. They would have been in the mix there with Alabama as kind of on the sidelines. But uh, but we think it's unlikely. Well, either way, that's what caught. That's the first thing that caught my eye. Um, Lots and lots of other things have caught my eye. Obviously, um, you know. Another thing that caught my eye was something happened last night for the first time in 15 years in the NBA. I know what that was. Your boy. <laughs> we were, are you talking about LeBron? Yeah. I mean, I, LeBron fouled out. Now, I started to uh, – it was ejected. Sorry, he didn't foul out. He was ejected. So He's I, never been ejected before. He's never in, in, been – in, in pro. Correct. He's never Maybe been, in high school he'd been ejected. I doubt it, but maybe. Well, so then I started to wonder, how could you do an analysis to determine whether – you know, how likely that was. So first thing I started to say was, which is, this is not the analysis I would do, but you could think of the following analysis. What's the baseline rate of people getting ejected from games? And then let's say, what's then the likelihood that someone would play 1,200 games, roughly, and never get ejected? Now, the problem I have with that analysis, which would be a very standard analysis to do, is LeBron's not an average player. The likelihood of them ejecting him is very different than the likelihood of them ejecting, you know, you know, the, the fourth Avery Bradley, or an accomplished player, but not LeBron James. But isn't that what you're, what you're trying to estimate? Oh, I thought that's what you were trying to get to. I'm trying to get to it. And I'm saying the first analysis that might come to mind is, what's the likelihood that a player who's played 1,200 games, if I use the average ejection rate, would be ejected? I'm saying I don't think that average ejection rate applies to LeBron James. So the math is fine. I think the assumption of applying the average average ejection rate to LeBron James is not... I'm not saying it's not an interesting calculation, but I I would think of a different calculation. Let's calculate the rate at which LeBron James gets technical fouls, Mm. okay? Mm. So let's condition on the technical foul rate of an individual. Right, good. Then what I'm going to do is to say, for someone who gets technical fouls at the rate he does, he obviously has never, until yesterday, gotten a second 
technical foul. Yeah. So I want to use that analysis. So do you think that they are willing to give the first one to people like Le- players like LeBron? They are willing to do that. And that's exactly. So you don't think that one's any different. Correct. And you could show that empirically. You could show that empirically. And then the question is, for someone that gets, I'm making this up. Let's say LeBron gets a technical one out of every 15 or 20 games. I don't know what the number is. Let's say he get, might get four to six in a particular season. For someone that has that marginal rate, what is their rate of yeah. ejection compared to LeBron? So I just want to take the population yeah, and sure. shrink it down to one who gets technicals at the rate he does, but not second technicals yeah. at the rate he does. So I, I love that. I would want to generalize it in one particular way. I would, I would want to ask not just the LeBron effect, but what is the quality that you're getting at there? And can you put that in there more continuously to show what it actually is? So there's something about celebrity or being the best player because we, we could be sure the same thing happened with Michael Jordan back in the day. And if you could show that, and it'd be interesting to think, what what is that? Is it is it is it celebrity measured by endorsements? Is it the degree to which they're the best player in the game? Could you show it as like you know rank the players in some sense? Um, and and my strong intuition is that that's what's going to be driving the the effect. The, yeah. Now, of course, a lot of people would say, you know, maybe there's a bunch of. I hope we have economists listening to our show. A lot of economists would say, but you guys don't think that's a causal story because maybe here's what this. There's just here's another confounding factor. LeBron James is not only the best player on the planet, but he's also got the best temperament on the planet. So maybe what your guys are forgetting is that LeBron James knows when he can argue, when not. So not only has he got the best skills, but he got the highest IQ, and he can read the referees the best. So it's not you're reading the causal story the wrong direction. It's not that they're not giving it to him. It's he knows when to act a certain way. So I just want to say, you asked what caught my eye. <laughs> when I saw LeBron got ejected for the first time, I first started to wonder, how rare is that? What's the likely population? And then I started to think, what's the causal story? Is it possible that it goes in the other direction? So, you know, to make it a little more complicated, some guys get reputations, and it's possible the reputations go in both directions. So consider what happens with some folks once they start getting thrown out of games, and then refs are probably a little even more willing to tee them up, right? So, so Maddie, Maddie, our producer, Maddie Das, just fed us the most, eje- most ejections. We know LeBron hasn't been are we talking about over in, the last year? No, 15 years. Most ejections in the last 15 years since LeBron started playing. So Pop, Popovich and Carlisle, a couple of coaches are 18. But among the players, DeMarcus Cousins, 13, Matt Barnes, 13, and Carmelo Anthony, 12. So Anthony's an interesting one. That's not somebody I would have guessed, actually, although he hasn't played as long. Obviously, you have to have someone that's played long. I would have guessed over the last few years it might have been someone like Draymond Green or somebody like that. Um, Carmelo's an interesting one because most people don't think he actually plays that hard. So what does he have? To, well, of course, he's a scorer. So scorers always think they're fouled on every single play. So he's a, he is a definitely an interesting person. You know, Matt Barnes, you can imagine why. Matt Barnes is one of these, Matt Barnes, one of these gritty defensive-like players who gets all over the other player, tries to get under their skin. You could see that. DeMarcus Cousins, I don't know, maybe it's his temperament, I don't know. Carmelo, I, you could have asked me to guess 20 NBA players, and I never would have guessed Carmelo Anthony. That's one of the reasons I wonder whether that— And he's a star, which is yeah, an interesting exactly. one. Yeah, exactly. He's a star, so it works against the star model, and it, that's what makes me wonder if there is a kind of a reputation that at some point it tips over. And having been kicked out of a few games, thrown out of a few games, you start increasing the likelihood of you're being, you're being ejected. So this is classic— this is like a 538 model column waiting to happen. We need a model of guys getting ejected from basketball games. But I think and the other thing we should also think about, I mean, if you just want to add one more wrinkle to the game, in this case, let's be clear, LeBron got two technicals, I believe. I'm, I may have this wrong. Our listeners can correct me. 
I thought it was on essentially the same play, meaning he didn't have one technical and then he got a second. I think there was something that happened and he got two technicals at once and was ejected. Now, that's a I, you might want to build that into whatever model right, you're considering. I, I do think of that as almost the you know the modal way people get kicked out of games, right? They get a technical and then they get then they argue it up in some way and they get the second technical. Right, because I want, but of course, the analysis I was talking about to start this point was I wanted to build a sequential model, and this is almost I hate to call it a simultaneous model, but like you're almost given two T's at once. I know that's not actual. No, no, no. You're still good. I think you still run your analysis. But by the way, I want to do it with survival analysis on a minutes played basis. So it's just it's the risk of being kicked out, the risk of being getting that second T as a function of how long you've played. And then you start dropping covariates in there to understand what pushes that thing around. That would be fantastic, including star status, including all kinds of things. That would be that would be a great it's analysis a, to do. Actually, piece. It's, on, not just a, it's not just a 538 piece, but if the data set were assembled, it's the kind of, you know, that's a great like student-like project right. to that's teach right. them about. So, you know, what what other confounding variables would you put in? You know, what's the rate of the first technical? Either way, it's a great project. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow this morning. And we're in open line segment this first half hour. What else? Eric, I, th- I think about you whenever the Sixers have these big games. So I, I Which was I was it? at. Well, before that, they also had the game against the Warriors. What, no, who was it that they were? Yeah, the Warriors they were up big on. And I texted you. I said, are you there? You go, no, but have you, basically, have you checked the score lately? Because they, had, they got out big, and then, my God, they got run in the third quarter. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I texted you at the time. This is why they play 48-minute games <laughs> and not 24-minute games. Yeah, I mean, the Sixers were up 20 at the half, and basically, I don't want to say lost by 20, but, you know, they were outscored like, I'll make the number up 40 to 10. Yeah, 30, the, exactly. 30 point swing in the third quarter. 30 point swing in the third quarter. And by the way, that's what the Warriors have been doing to many, many teams this year, which is the third quarter, their point differential is much, much higher than in the other quarters. Now, one could argue that's good coaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, they've always said, you know, in some sense, think of the third quarter. You have an opportunity to go into the locker room, coaches can make adjustments. Now maybe it's not due to that, but either way, yeah, that was a that was an interesting game. So, so by the way, quick call back to uh, our conversation about the technical. We have a caller who suggested you need a referee effect as well. So some of those guys are a little more willing to call those tees, right? So you, if you had the referee ID, you could drop that in there as another factor. So more recently, the Sixers had another big game two nights ago. They played the 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 Cavs. LeBron and the Cavs came in, and it was one of the lead stories on Sports Center because the, the the deal was, man, that 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 LeBron came in wanting to send a message. Well, he sent it. Um, I was at the game. Um, I would say I think LeBron had I don't remember, but this way he could have had sixty if he wanted to have sixty. He had twenty or something in the first quarter. Um, he uh, the Cavaliers basically played at. I would say 60% intensity and ended up winning the game by 25 points. They weren't trying that hard. LeBron was playing at half speed. It wasn't the full, I got to win. I mean, yes, I want to win this game. But LeBron played hard, I would say, for 8 to 10 minutes in that game. Uh, Kevin Love was just, you know, standing by the three-point line, shooting shots. Um, they, They were intense for five minutes to win the game, and that was about it. So it showed me that I love the Sixers. I love what they're doing. There's a significant gap still between, and by the way, this is the Cleveland Cavaliers without Isaiah Thomas yet in this, in the lineup at all. There's a significant gap between the Sixers and the Cavaliers. It was a good measuring stick for the Sixers, and what it also showed me, 
I've said this many, many times on Wharton Moneyball. When your best player on your team, and I still believe at the moment, may not be forever, the best player on the Sixers right now is Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. When the best player on your team is a center, you've got a problem in the NBA. Hmm. Because who has the ball in clutch situations? It's not the center. Mm-hmm. And teams can stop any center. You double team them. You do what Cleveland did, which was clever. You pressure the guys in the backcourt, not to steal the ball, but to grind time off the clock. Mm-hmm. By the time the ball gets into Embiid's hands, there's five seconds left on the shot clock. Mm-hmm. I saw this with Patrick Ewing and the Knicks for 16 years. That's how the Bulls would play them. You get the guards, in this case Jordan and Pippen and Ron Harper, to smother the guards. The ball gets to Ewing, but it gets to him with five seconds left. Right. Then there's limited options. Right. That was Cleveland's plan here. And Bede still put up 30-something points. Right. He was great, but the Sixers don't have enough shooting. Well, so I was about to ask about Simmons because— the, He can't the, shoot. That's, the, that's, that's a challenge because everyone's talking about this duo as being one of the, the most exciting young duo in the game. And what you're telling me is, yeah, he's a great guard for handling things and creating, but he's not, he's not getting his own shots. He, he's not a shooter. He literally didn't take one jump shot in the entire game. He took a bunch of hooks, runners, and dunks. But actually, he was he would be open from 15 feet. 15 feet. I mean, he's a guard. And he actually, I'm literally saying this, and I'm thinking of all 11 of his shots. He did not take one jump shot. Mm-hmm. He took hooks, runners, and dunks. So two things. One about the Sixers and one about Simmons. Do they have guys who, they, they have any spot-up shooters? I mean, well, that got, talent is the, out there to be had, right? Well, what really cost them the game, and this you can, they were going to lose the game anyway. We have a shooter, two shooters on our team. One's Robert Covington. He was 1 for 11 in the game for two points. Yeah. And we have J.J. Redick, one of the great shooters of all time. Absolutely. He was 4 for 16 in the game. So combined, our two shooters were 5 for 27 in the now, game. Is that just chance, or were the Cavs playing them in some way they had trouble with? Uh, the I don't even know. I didn't even know how J.J. Redick could have gotten the ball. He was smothered so much on really? defense. Really? Yeah, because you stopped the shooters, and that's so either way. I thought it was a beautifully constructed strategic game by the Cavaliers. Okay. You cover the shooters, you n- let him breed, get his 30, and that's it. The game's over. Okay. So do are there examples of guards who, over their professional career, develop that outside shot? So Simmons, if he's going to be what people would like for him to become, he's going to have to add some kind of jump shot. So the first one that comes to mind, which is the person that people say Simmons is most like, Magic Johnson. So, I mean, only because they're both big guards. They both have good ball handling skills, good floor vision. Magic Is Simmons John- really anywhere close to Johnson's size? Oh, he's bigger. Really? He's bigger. Oh, uh, Ben Simmons is a legitimate six foot ten. He's a legitimate six ten. He may be six eleven. You see him standing next to like Robert Covington, who's like six eight, six nine. He's taller. Wow. No, okay. no. He's okay. a big man. Okay. This is a tall. He's at least six ten. He's okay. tall. So he's, you know, Magic Johnson was 6'9". This yeah, is yeah, Magic yeah. Johnson's size-ish. Okay. Magic Johnson could not shoot at all early on in his career. And he developed a good jump shot. Not It wasn't great. A good jump shot. A lot of people don't remember Michael Jordan's first few years. He actually was not a very good jump shooter. Hmm. Became, obviously, one of the great jump shooters of all time. So absolutely. Yeah. Look, if he so, shoots 1,000 shots a day in the gym. Well, I was about to say, Eric, you just named two of the most competitive players probably in NFL, I mean, NBA history. What, how, if you were to try to assess whether Simmons has the character in him that will lead him to do the work, 
to develop the shot but like those guys did. How would you assess that? That's a, a really hard question that NBA teams, NFL teams, M- MLB teams struggle with. How do you know whether a guy like Simmons has the kind of character that's going to lead to that development over his career? No, maybe I have this wrong, but I thought it was you the one that told me this, that what a lot of, what some teams do, the more advanced, let's call it HR analytics teams do, when a guy comes in, let's say you're trying out, should we draft Ben Simmons, Mark, who should we draft? You bring a guy in and you take away what he can do best. So you go to, for example, you have Ben Simmons try out with the Sixers, and you say, look, you can't dunk the ball, and you can't throw up a hook shot. Mm -hmm. So you go out there and play against our guys, but no dunks and hooks. Mm -hmm. Now let's see what it is that Ben Simmons does out on the court. So I thought you were the one that told me this, that one strategy is you make someone... Behave like you make you can when Ben Simmons he is lefty but you know you only can shoot with your off hand yeah. you can you can't dunk the ball what would you, someone do you know, so who I, I th- you know who I think you got that from this is gonna it say, wasn't you I think it was Sam Hinkie when when we were visiting him with him before a game a maybe few years that's ago. what Sam, maybe talking, that's what it was, was you were about, with me but maybe I was, I was with you but he was talking about putting guys in in odd situations and that's making sounding things. like now that you're saying it it's sounding like Sam Hinkie and it wasn't so much whether they could do it but how they responded to it but that's what you just asked me you just yeah. asked me how could you tell whether someone has the grit or fortitude or willingness yeah. to say you know. My A game is great, but I'm going to need a B game. Yeah. And so take away their A game and see how we'll see what happens. As a matter of fact, let me just say, I know it's not related, but since I have a son that plays competitive squash at a pretty high level, they do that all the time. He has great drop shots, but when he's cu- getting coached and during his practices, they will say, you must hit this, what's called a center line. Think of the squash court as being, let's say, 30 feet long. There's a center line at 15 feet. You can't. Your second shot. Your ball must hit beyond the center must line. Ba- must come back. It must come back. And, and matter of fact, you lose the point if it doesn't. So it's not even. Well, we'll keep playing. No, you lose the point. Like, don't don't work on the thing that you're good at. Work on the thing that you need to show and up at that see level. how someone reacts to it. That's mm-hmm. exactly the kind. I I love that because it's a great use of let's call it analytics or you know ev- evaluative training. And I, I think it's a great idea. So I was. Uh, I've, this is a question that teams take up, and this is a question that teams want want help on. And one of the, one of the things that they do is they interview players, and they interview people around players. So the, the you know players are coached up on this stuff pretty hard. So it's it's hard, it's difficult to get revealing information out of them. But but you know you talk to them long enough, and you ask enough questions, you get some things. But often it's the people around them that will that will reveal a little bit more. I heard an interesting question in the last couple of days from a team who asked if if this player is going to fail in the next two years, why will that be? And that, that's what Danny Kahneman calls a pre-mortem. He says, when you're thinking about these decisions, you, you might do, don't wait till they fail to do the post-mortem. Ask ahead of time, if this doesn't work out well, why will it be that it doesn't work out well? And often that'll help surface something that you aren't thinking well, about let me sufficiently. Well, let me say two things that I love about that. First of all, I think, as you know, one of the programs I run here at Wharton is a Google Wharton Marketing Academy. One of the questions I start out in the first time, the first day the students arrive is, if Google weren't going to be around in 15 years, why? So we have a half an hour discussion about the pre-mortem of what would cause Google, one of the great companies of the world, not to be around. Mm-hmm. So I love that discussion. I love all of those ideas. As a matter of fact, we could do the same in the NBA. A lot of people have the Golden State Warriors as winning the title, or 50%, Warriors versus the field, which I want to talk about in a second because there's something else that caught my eye. What would make the Warriors not win the title? I mean, the obvious answer. Well, it's an is injury. Injuries. Is it obvious injury. What, what else could it be? Well, just, Steve, Steve Kerr's health. <laughs> Steve Kerr's health, maybe. Just, just quickly, just something else. By the way, 
caught my eye. The Warriors are 15-6. and six. Now, that's a very, very good record. But if you extrapolate that out, they're not even going to win 60 games this year. Now, you might start to say, does that matter? Maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe they can win 55-60. to 60. I'm actually starting to believe, you know, what's the old expression? That wear on the tires? Mm-hmm. I think we're just starting to see a team that's been to the finals three straight years, oh. who's played over 100 games every year. It's no longer the young KD, the young Steph Curry, the young Draymond Green. I'm starting to think that mm. I'm not saying they've jumped the shark, if that's even the right expression at this point, but I'm starting to think that they may be showing some tread on the tires, which may lead to higher likelihood of injury, but even uninjured, it's not as obvious to me. Look, maybe they're just saying, look, who cares how we play now? We'll be there at the finals. I don't know. if They're trending towards 55 to 60 wins. That's mm-hmm. very different. Well, it is interesting because we something we have seen in the NBA is that Player, teams are resting players more. They're, they're, they are saving them more for the postseason. But you're raising this other interesting question, which is, is there a cumulative effect? And we know from talking to guys in baseball for whom the, this is their living, they say, look, you pitch deeper in the postseason and you have trouble in the spring. And, and it, it's your performance, but it's also your health. So we know in baseball there's this carryover. And you're talking about guys. I mean, the difference between – ending at regular season versus going deep in the NBA playoffs is what? It's like a month. It's more than a month. More it's than a month. six weeks. Well, that's why I've always said what LeBron James has done, I understand he hasn't won the finals every year. I get it. He's been to seven straight finals. Now, people say, oh, that's the weak East, whatever it is. This is still seven straight years the guy's essentially played 100 games a year. I mean, the guy... It's so, just, Eric, how would you suss that out? Empirically, you have this, you have this confound, but the guys who are best or the guys who are playing deeper into the season. But then you want to suss out whether playing deeper in the season affects your performance in the future. So obviously injuries would be a, would be less confounded. But you'd like to think that you could run this analysis. And there's probably enough variation because some of the best players are on bad teams. You could look at, you could try to parse the impact of playing deep into one season on performance in the subsequent or playing deep into three seasons in a row performance on you know, on the court. Yeah, I think your, your point is, I think there's a lot of challenges in the analysis you're talking about. Um, one is, of course, what measure of performance do you want to use? I think that's one issue. I think another issue, as you're talking about, is you have all this historical data, but as you said, is it the cumulative number of games that matters? Is it the number of minutes that matters? And I think the answer would vary depending on how you measured wear and tear. Mm-hmm. I think it would vary depending on how you measured it. Like, is it games played? Well, what if, you know, KD, play, Kevin Durant plays a game but only plays 20 minutes because it's a blowout win? Do you want to count that as a, as a full game? That's what I was thinking. In the Cleveland game that they just played the Sixers, I don't know if LeBron played 30 minutes. I'm going to guess the answer is no. I I don't even think he really broke a sweat in the game. So, yes, it's a game. He didn't play that. With with, with motion tracking technology these days, you could really get get at some of this stuff. On both sides of the equation, right? You could could see the effort expended on the right-hand side of the equation, and then you can look at somehow the effort you know, shown downstream on the left. Well, it's side. not even effort shown, but we, you know, what we've had a guest on just recently that would say we could actually see. I mean, literally, not figuratively, are the Warriors slowing down? Yeah, right, right. Fascinating. All right, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 to 10 Eastern, 
Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, especially if you're catching one of the replays where we replayed, I believe, five times over the course of the week. Great way to reach out to us. But also, you can write us during the show. We do pick them up. You can follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. Cade and Eric this morning, Shane and Audie are away. We are rolling into the second quarter. This is a moment where we usually bring in a guest, and we have a guest this morning. We're delighted to welcome back to the show Jerry Palm. Good morning, Jerry. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for having me back. How's it going? Going going real fine. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I'm in um, Sherville, Indiana, which is the suburban Chicago part of northwest Indiana. Got it, got it. People don't realize how quickly you hit Indiana when you drive south and southeast out of, uh, out of Chicago. Jerry, of course. Jerry's a senior sports writer for CBS Sports. He's been covering college basketball and college football for years now. He came out of Purdue back in the day with a BS in computer science and has worked in corporate America. You program an analyst for Bank of America. I didn't know that, Jerry. And Yeah, and I, lawyers. Lawyers and bankers for 17 years. Oh, my goodness. I, so um, got caught up in this. Well, t- tell us about the catching up because that's, that's a fun story. You know, people – People who haven't been following you for twenty years or whatever it is, I, I don't realize 25. that you cre- you kind of you were one of the first to create this space for yourself. You were one of the original blogger turned professionals in sports analytics. Is that too big a claim to make? Not really. No, I mean, I I think it's safe to say that I sort of helped, at least in terms of how college basketball goes, kind of pioneer all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the the science of bracketology, which isn't really, I don't know how much of a is science. I think it's as much art as it is science, or it's, it's certainly it's not the science that people think it is. Right. Um, See, the, but you but you know that because you're deep into it. Sometimes I think the best uh, analysts realized how subjective even what seems to be quantitative objective analysis is. Well, I mean, it's, you know, you're talking about, I mean, in basketball and, and to some degree a little bit differently, though, football, you know, you've got a committee that is selecting the postseason and seeding the postseason and and they have data and the data does drive the process to some degree but it doesn't make the decisions the committee makes the decisions and it's a subjective process yeah that's on objective data and it's a, you know trying to predict what they're going to do is as much behavior analysis as it is anything else that's fair you're trying to figure what are these people going to do with a set of information kind of based on what they've done with similar sets of information in the past. That's right. So in this case, it truly is. I mean, it's, it's a quantitative process, but you are, you're, you're putting in essentially subjective inputs into the model. So, I mean, you, I want to come back to that. We want to talk about the committee clearly, and Eric's trying to jump in here. I'm going to hold him off for just a quick second because (laughs) I want people to understand that you really came up through the basketball side when you, you were, you were almost the original bracketologist and yeah, me and Joel Lenardi. Okay, um, so you and I mean, I remember being, I remember being, and I think maybe the early days of BCS or whatever. The, one of the first manifestations of BCS was. I'm in grad school. I'm looking for Jerry Palm for wisdom on what's going on because I always cared about college football. Yeah, but I was the first to do the the BCS. Is okay. Uh, it was easy to adapt what I was doing for basketball to football. Um, but uh, basketball, um, I started tracking the RPI in 1993-94 season. Um, and that was because they had changed the formula that year. I saw an article about it. I had a computer and too much time on my hands and an interest it, for really my own edification. Um, and, you know, back then, 
I mean, Al Gore just invented the internet. I mean, we have <laughs> right. message boards to talk to each other. That, and that, that really was writing on the wall version yep. on the news groups. I'm sorry, the caveman writing on the wall version of message boards and stuff now. So, um, so that's how I shared my information, thinking nobody would care, and it turned out people cared, uh, and it and it became sort of a hobby for me. I mean, I still had my job uh, at that time working for the bankers. Um, but then when I, uh, I don't know, about 2002, I got downsized in my job when we got bought by one bank too many and, um, and decided to turn my hobby into a job. And here I am. That's well, great. Jerry, this is Eric Bradlow. You actually, you I, and Kate are exactly discussing what I was going to, I raised my hand for. Why is this any different than the NCAA bubble teams? There's a group for that, football? yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I'm saying I, I listened to I listened to, obviously I listened to the show. I'm on the show. <laughs> You guys said there's subjectivity. They're presented right. with data. Yeah. You're someone that's worked in the NCAA. We have to decide who the, now it's 68 teams, who's in, and you always have this bubble teams. Right. We have bubble teams in the NCAA football. Is there any difference between the two? Why isn't it just the same exact problem? Uh, it is similar because, um, you know, you obviously we're talking about a 14 playoff, not 68. So your bubble is smaller because there's only going to be so many potential teams that could qualify for four. When you get down to 68, and it's 36 at-large teams, and you're looking at the pool of teams that could fit, fill the last, say, three or four spots, you've probably got 10 that are all equally flawed. Here, you know, you're looking at – you're not usually looking for equally flawed. You're looking at all very good teams that are very good in different ways, but you're talking about a complete pool of seven for four spots. So, Jerry, do you right? think it's slightly different also? You know, just I'm thinking as a statistician, you obviously have a background in computer science. In one case, we're trying to differentiate teams, what it's called on the right tail of the distribution, and the other ones, we're trying to say, who are the best of the mediocre teams at the center of the distribution? Do you think that's right. what leads to kind of there being, I don't want to call outrage, but there being more hype for the NCAA football as opposed to basketball? Like, yeah, all right, we agree. You know, I'll use your example. Purdue this year was okay. They're number 70 versus 65. All right, 65 they're in, 70 they're not. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But now we're talking right. about just four, and we're talking about estimating the highest right tail of the distribution. Correct. And and, and I think part of the, the reason why there's pretty much always going to be controversy in football, or at least until the system changes, is that this system is essentially designed to fail. Four teams is not enough. Because you can look at number Penn, let's look at Penn State. What are they nine this week? Penn yes. State is good enough to win a tournament of these teams if their tournament were big enough to include Penn State. Right. But it's not. It's not big. It's not a big enough tournament to include all the teams that are legitimately capable of winning it, mm-hmm. given the opportunity. In basketball, that is not a problem. Now, Jerry, they're going. You know, the 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 response to that by the defenders will say, "Yeah, but that preserves the integrity of the regular season." Well, I you know. I mean, I know, and I understand their point. I'm just saying that you know that's why we're always going to have con- this controversy in football. I mean, right. they design the the people who run this sport, which is basically the conference commissioners. And, I mean, you know, mostly the major conference commissioners, five of them, designed a 14 playoff, knowing that. At least one of their champions every single year would miss this playoff. At right. least one. Right. Last year too. Do, do you think you know, they're going to this year too? Do you think they'll expand eventually? Well, no. Well, maybe, but this is a, they they created this system and then they created a twelve year a twelve year right. deal right. for this system. Right. If they're going to expand it, it's not going to happen till the end of that deal. They did that on purpose. 
right? And and I think to remove the issue. Is kind of spe- to- well, I think the spec. My speculation as to why they did this is that the commissioners at the time figure they're all going to turn over in that 12-year period, right? And they don't want to have to deal with this again during their terms. Oh, interesting. And and they're going to leave it for the new blood to deal with when that time comes. So, Jerry, let I me ask you. are going to see the full 12 years play out with this. Yeah, Jerry, let me ask you a question. As a, you know, I'm a marketing professor, too. Maybe this is marketing. Oh. If it's eight for five spots, there's not as much hype about it. But now <laughs> you've got four with five. Maybe let me could, could the following be true, given all your experience. These are the most brilliant marketing people in the world, and this is leading to increased hype. Well, you're the marketing professor. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess I'll, I don't know if it's the most brilliant marketing in the world. I, I think there's other issues. I mean, when they talk about the integrity of the regular season, uh, you know, I think that they expanded. I don't know, gosh, it's been at least a decade now. They expanded the regular season from 11 games to 12. Yeah. Uh, and they did that because they wanted more home gates for these bigger schools because right. the revenue, you know, that's part of the revenue that drives uh, not just, you know, their, I mean, their athletic departments. I mean, football drives you know, the the revenue stream for most of these athletic departments. If you make this playoff bigger, now you're good, you're getting to the point where the, the teams that do well in the playoffs are going to play the length of a full NFL season. And I think that that's kind of where they get uncomfortable. Yeah, there are some limits so, there. Now, what, but, one... but they're not going to take away regular season games to make the playoffs bigger. Right, of course. You know, the playoffs bigger at the lower divisions, but they don't play as many regular season games, and football doesn't drive revenue. That's these, right. These schools are not going to give up home dates to make a playoff bigger. So the need for revenue is a hard constraint on this system. That makes a ton of sense. We're talking to Jerry Palm. Jerry is the senior sports writer for CBS Sports. What's your what's your reaction to how the committee has done so far this year and how have you had how have you done modeling what they were gonna, what they've been doing? I have I've done reasonably well. Um, there was a week where it's kind of all over the place, but uh, most weeks I'm I'm pretty good. Like this week I had the top 12 right except for 2 and 3. You had uh, the top 12 in, in order? Yeah. Wow. Are, now t- um, t- tell me are you doing that uh, kind of manually or like how oh, how yeah. how uh, yeah, rule based it's not rule based so yeah the, the the basketball process well i mean it's even the basketball process is mostly manual but at least the data i can create for myself you know I the see. rpi is is a well-known thing and you know it's um so i have tools that i've created to help me compare teams the way the committee does this wow. is a much more subjective and nebulous process i mean they talk about strength of schedule I don't even know how they measure strength of schedule. They don't tell you how right. they measure strength of schedule. I think they've got about five or six different metrics to measure strength of schedule. But even with even with that, when you're talking about 130 teams playing just 12 or 13 games, that's not a lot of data no. to really quantify strength of schedule. You take a team like Oklahoma. Oklahoma, I think, is being punished a little bit for their strength of schedule. And, and the, the subjective part of this is that I think they, this committee prefers defensive teams versus offensive teams. Interesting. Okay. Um, and they've talked about, and Hokut has talked about that, you know, talked specifically about Oklahoma's defense. Man, that hurts um, them because that's a big spread. They have the number one offense in the country and about the 38th or 40th best defense. It's a big discrepancy. Right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, but, you know, so that's part of all of the, of the subjectivity that's going on. So, Jerry, can, uh, can, I, I, just, I, can I, I ask you? Get, I'm curious to, to to take advantage of your, your you've got you've got this system. You've you've got the freedom to move these things around in a way that we don't. So, for for our system, for Massey Peabody system, we're using it on the on the tail end of a simulation. 
So it has to be entirely rule-based for us, right? Because we're going to run 20,000 right. sims, and no matter what happens at the end of the season, what it looks like, we need a way of predicting what the committee is going to do. So we're constrained to dropping in, you know, four or five variables or whatever rules we want to put in there. You, right. you're, you're, and so our predictions are always I, I can't, off. Some. I cannot do my job if it's too rule-based. Okay, so now I'm curious because, because the process is not rule-based. The right, I mean, clearly these guys aren't quite that consistent. We, in our models, we're explaining like 25 percent of the variance or something, but the big question people are wondering about is if Ohio State beats Wisconsin like they should because they're I mean that's your part of the world but we have them pretty big favorites in that game most most people do I'm sure Vegas does if they do and everything else kind of goes you know according to the chalk they're the committee's gonna have a decision between Alabama and Ohio State what what do you think they're gonna do I feel like you're gonna tell us truth here here's truth from Jerry Palm on what the committee's (laughs) gonna do Alabama Um, versus Ohio State well I think I mean, they're going to look at Ohio State and they're going to see some pretty good wins, right? Wisconsin, uh, neutral, Penn State home, uh, big win over Michigan State at home. Uh, Come but, on. They, know, they, they're going to put too much weight on Michigan State. They shouldn't be putting much weight on that. Well, I don't think they're going to put a whole lot of – I mean, it's you know, it's, it's as good a win as uh, Alabama's best win, which is, you know, LSU – you know, Mississippi State. I'll disagree with that strongly. I would take – what do you, you think – yeah, okay. LSU and Michigan okay. State on neutral field. What do you think that's going to look like? Um – I I don't know. LSU lost to Troy, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Come on, Jerry. They've been better than that. But, yeah. You know, it's okay. I, fair I, enough. Fair I, enough. I, that, that's no better than a that, that's no better than a touchdown and, to me. But that's a big spread. But the committee, uh, fine, 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 fine. The committee's going to look at Michigan State and count it as as good a win as Alabama has, and that's what we want to know. We're trying to say descriptively, what's the committee going to do? So, but then the other thing, I mean, when you look at their their relative, I guess, strength of schedule, you know, Alabama had some bad luck in the sense that Florida State fell apart after Alabama took their quarterback out. Right. Um, but they've also, like Hocutt last night, talked about how Alabama's done as well as they have, you know, missing as many as four linebackers right. Uh, right. at some point during the season, and they're getting healthier. And that's the subjective part of this. Right. Um, I, I think the thing that stands out to me when I look at those two teams is that Ohio State lost by 31 at Iowa. That's and ugly. That's, just, that's, that's a good team, but not a great team. And – that that's a game where Ohio State just flat out did not compete. Right. And Purdue, the, the next team Iowa played at home, got forty points closer to beating them than Ohio State did. <laughs> Which yeah, you know, that's I pretty. About. But you know, okay. Okay. So, so in the Jerry so Palm my, model, my, my, my guess is they lean toward Alabama. That's wow. my guess. But it's it's a it's a pretty close call because Alabama doesn't have the big win. Yep. You know, and yep. and with and Ohio State would have a couple of wins over teams that are going to be in the top 10. Yep. So Jerry, does the following thinking come in? I'm going to use your language from a couple of minutes ago. You made an ag- argument which I think I agree with that if Penn State got into the tournament, they would have a chance to win it. So why let's why don't we use that logic for Alabama versus Ohio State? Which Alabama of those two teams yeah, so that's my view, is that yep. if you use that logic, which one of them has a chance to win it all? I think most well, people would say Ohio State is far less likely to win the national championship if they were to get in than Alabama would be. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't know about far less likely, but yes. I think Alabama's just as a, as a football team, I think Alabama's a better team. And, and that is part of this process. What's so, your you know, sense that, of how much, that, how much weight do they put on that? Oh, the, definitely. I mean, especially in close calls. You know, that, that, that is definitely a part of it. And they've also sort of given themselves, now here's where they do have rules. Um, conference championships are supposed to be a factor in close, in close situations. 
So that could actually work for Ohio State. Yeah, Alabama's for sure. got a better record, played about the same schedule, doesn't have as good a wins, doesn't have a 31-point loss to Iowa. So, you know, to me, Alabama, to me, it's Alabama, but it's not definitely yeah Alabama. yeah yeah there is no definite so by the way in, in our up in our in massive peabody's rankings this week we have alabama and ohio state one and two and we mostly we've had them one and two all year but it's it's interesting that the debate if it comes down to this for that marginal team is who we uh-huh. consider to be the two best teams in the in the country and only about a three-point spread between them so and one thing about this committee this year that's been a little bit different than the past and that's one of the things about committees is that they evolve so there's turnover right. you know right. this is still new we we don't i've got 25 years of precedent on the basketball committee. I've got three with these guys. <laughs> right. Um, is that they've had a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition thing, but a, sure. a near fanatical devotion to head to head. Yeah. You know, and especially in the top, say, 15 of these rankings. Okay. So, 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 so real, Jerry, now, let me clarify. If, if let, Auburn let, loses, let me clarify. So leave Auburn ahead of Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you're, let me clarify. You're saying. In your observation, because you're looking at you're looking at fine fine details in their rankings, you're saying they've been fanatically devoted to always making sure that when these these t- prominent teams have played each other, the winner the order is reflecting the winner of those head to heads. What happened to Penn State yep. Ohio State and, last and, year? No, and, he's saying this committee. It changes oh, this every committee. year. This yeah, committee. This okay. committee. Okay. Yes, this committee. But, that's, but that, and that's in fact, I'm saying that's one of the things that's different about this year. Auburn, you know, with two losses, was ahead of Georgia after they beat them, is ahead of Alabama after they beat them, even though those are teams with better records and arguably similar schedules. So, you know, last year, Ohio State was ahead of Penn State. But, but you know, one of the differences, they did not see that as being close. Right, you know? exactly. And, and, and they may see this as being close, where head-to-head with a tiebreaker. Ohio State, actually, Ohio State and Penn State weren't even next to each other. Washington was in between. The debate was Penn State or Washington, not Penn State or Ohio State. Right. And I get that. I mean, Ohio State last year was 3-1 and one against the other top 10 teams. And Auburn is now 2-1 and one yep. against the other top So, Jerry, are you saying that it's critical for, us, for Alabama's chances that Auburn beat Georgia? Well, I'm saying, yeah, I, I, I don't think they would leave 10-3 and three Auburn ahead of 11-1 and one Alabama. But but they're going to hate committee, it. This committee might anyway. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, they wouldn't. I mean, they could say they could save themselves that angst by just putting Ohio State in above Alabama if that happens, right? Well, but that Ohio State is. Oh, and here's the other thing for Ohio State: if Oklahoma loses, they're done because Oklahoma's going to drop, but not they're not going to drop below Ohio State. <laughs> and TCU may jump them both. Okay, so what we're hearing from you, which is fascinating, is that from your you, from it's, then you only get this by the close inspection you've been giving to their rankings for the last five weeks. You're saying these guys, this committee in particular, are fanatical in Spanish Inquisition level fanaticism about head to head, and you so think far. that you think that's going to have consequences for what they Jerry, do. Jerry, you've week. just given me something. Everybody knows I'm a doomsday guy. You've just given me something to root for this Saturday, which is just TCU. I'm, I'm begging for TCU to beat Oklahoma and then to see what they do with Oklahoma, TCU, Alabama, and Ohio State. Thank you. You've given me something to root for on Saturday. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about football then for just a second, Jerry. Tell, what chances does TCU really have against Oklahoma? My reaction is Baker Mayfield's going to have to go out. They're going to have to knock him out of the game for them to win that. I'm sure that's not true, but their offense does feel that, you know, unstoppable. They're on a roll, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're on a roll. Um well, TCU is going to have to, I think, force turnovers, force mistakes, get them out of their comfort 
zone, do something that they haven't seen on film, you know, to, on defense. Cause if anybody Gary can Patterson, do that. First of all, is a great defense yeah, coach. Yeah, exactly. If anybody can do that, Gary Patterson can do it. And exactly. how, how so, would you like to have to run an offensive game plan against Gary Patterson two out of four weeks or whatever it is? No, I mean, I he just played this team. He just yeah. played this team. Yeah, it's, and then the other thing is that their offense is going to have to perform, and they've done that at times. I mean, their offense went into Oklahoma State and scored 40-something, you know, on the Cowboys. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, so they, need, uh, they need to be able to – you know, they need to be able to, to find a way to manufacture points because you're only going to hold them down so far. Right, right, right. Well, you know, the trouble is if you were to trust a quarterback in a big game situation, you'd trust Baker Mayfield a lot sooner before, right. than you'd trust Kenny Hill. Kenny Hill's played safer this year, and, and, and Baker Mayfield's had his moments. But, you see, it really seems like the guy, you know, a fifth-year quarterback, a, a guy who's had as many starts as Mayfield has had, that's, what you, that's, what, that's, a, that's a separating factor with college football teams in many circumstances. Jerry, that has that's our time, man. We gotta let you go. Really appreciate your being with us this morning. All right, thank you. That was Jerry Palm. Jerry is senior sports writer for CBS Sports. He's been covering college basketball for something like twenty five years, and now he's an expert in college football as well, especially the committees on both of those things. But Jerry is one of the original stories on picking this sports analytics stuff up as a hobby, doing some blogging, and then turning it into a profession. And uh, and he's and he's been making real contributions for a long time. Again, Jerry Palm. By the way, you can care, you can follow Jerry on Twitter at JP Palm at JP Palm. That's been the first half of our show. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio Sirius XM One Eleven. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Our co-collaborators, collaborators, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, out and about doing Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner things this morning. They will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, to talk sports analytics. You can... Talk sports analytics with us if you'd like. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Especially a good way to reach us if you're hearing one of the replays. We're replayed 45 times over the course, 425, that is, over the course of the week. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We're just off the phone with Jerry Palm talking football committee. We have another leading light in sports analytics jumping on in the next half hour. I'm going to give you, I'm going to tease it with his Twitter handle. Our next guest can be followed on Twitter at Dean O underscore Lytics. Dean O underscore Lytics. If you know sports analytics, you know that is Dean Oliver. Dean, welcome to the show. Good to be here, sir. Glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am in Connecticut, near uh, my old uh, ESPN stomping ground. Is that right? You just decided to stay close when you when you left the mothership? You know, Connecticut is actually a much nicer state than I would have imagined when I'm up here. It, uh, there's a lot going on up here. I, I agree. I, I enjoyed my time up there quite a bit. And, of course, it's surrounded by all of the beautifulness of New England, which is another positive thing. Um, so glad glad to know that's where you are, Dean. Of course, a little background on Dean. He, he came out of Caltech. I think that's a you know, decent decent school out there. BS in engineering, Caltech, PhD in environmental science and engineering from UNC in Chapel Hill, 
And Dean's literally wrote the book on basketball analytics, wildly influential analyst on basketball, and, and, and his influence has spread beyond basketball. He can talk football. I'm sure we will talk a little bit of football. Um, Dean's one of these guys who's worked on the media side with ESPN and other folks, as well as with teams. He's been with the Supersonics back when the Supersonics existed and the Denver Nuggets and the Sacramento Kings. Right now, Dean's working as VP of Data for True Media Networks and continues to kick out good stuff. Again, you can follow Dean on Twitter at Dino underscore Lytics. Dean, what are you working on today? What do you, what's Dean Oliver thinking about and working on today? Uh, well, today actually is working on some some football stuff. So we are looking at some offensive line work and uh, seeing what we can do with regard to quarterback decisions. Well, tell us about that. We'd love to hear more about that. Offensive line is a famously tough thing for analysts to, to, to dig into. Yeah, well, historically, uh, a lot of what the offensive line is, does is not very well measured. And, and it, it probably it's going to take a little time before everything is captured. But I mean, fundamentally, say in the passing game, what the offensive line tries to do is just give the quarterback a lot of time before he starts having to feel pressure and so forth. So if, um, if you can just – some of the things you can do with existing data is just look at the time before the pressure gets to the quarterback. And a lot of times it doesn't get to the quarterback. Mm-hmm. If they throw it in one second, that doesn't give the defense a lot of time. So it's accounting for how hard it was. Mm-hmm. If the offensive line only had to hold off the defensive line for one second, that's not as impressive as if they had to hold them off for four and a half seconds. Okay. And just giving appropriate credit the right way. And then ultimately in the long run, we want to divide credit among the different linemen because if the pressure ended up coming from the left, that's one thing. If it came from the right, that's that's another. Right. So you, are are you using motion tracking data to do these kinds of things, or are you are someone coding this for you? Uh, I think right now we're using um, more publicly available data, um, but the the player tracking data I think it's been and discussed out there. The NFL has been collecting player tracking data for uh, a few years at this point, and it's only available. Uh, to teams, they only get the one side of the ball at this point. Yeah, this is so just to clarify. Dean, Dean, Dean's saying that the NFL kicks the data back out to the teams, but they only give them their data. So they don't get to that when they're on offense, they get offensive data. When they're on defense, they get defensive data. So it, they can do some things with this, and some teams are playing with it, but they're limited. Yeah, and that's um, I, I think in the NFL when that that player tracking data comes about, it's going to revolutionize the way we watch sports. I think it's going to take a while before. People, uh, before you can influence coaches in a significant way, I, I think in part because coaches watch tape, which is essentially player tracking data themselves, and they absorb it very well. It's going to take a while before you can catch up to the coaches, but I think the way we watch it and the way you evaluate players like the offensive line, like uh, safeties, defensive safeties, they we hear, oh, they're a really good safety, but exactly why i think Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff will become a lot more clear when some of that player tracking data uh, becomes more widely available and people get the opportunity to to work with it so dean this is eric bradlow first of all thank you for being on the show it's great to have you on again um just a quick question how can you evaluate let's say it's an offensive lineman if you don't know the intent of the play Maybe it was the third option the uh, the uh, offense chose to run because the quarterback saw something or a play was changed. Do you see ever an op- opportunity where motion tracking data is actually linked to 
play calling data so you could say this play was this offensive line was successful given what the play was it's a great question um and what i would say is actually uh, no um because even though so let's just say right now we're we're all sitting on the outside and we don't know what that play call was supposed to be in even during a game, so you, if you have your own team's data and you know what they were supposed to do, that does help you. And so internally, they can evaluate that. But if they're watching an opponent, if you're, on, if you're in New England and you're watching the Steelers, you don't know exactly what they were supposed to do. So you're an outsider to their team, too. So you're always going to have to take this approach that I am a little bit of an outsider, and you don't necessarily know what they were trying to do and so there's always this approach that um you can record what you see and if you have enough opportunities and you know the way the game should be played uh you can judge it somewhat there but you're right right. um the internal perspective is is always beneficial but uh, i just like to point out to people that new england is an outsider to the steelers and there's, you're always going to have some outside perspective that's necessary. Well, that, now you've said it twice, basically. You basically said, look, we're treating motion tracking data as this new big thing, and it is. But at some level, this is what the teams are already doing. This is coaches watching tape. Oh, and by the way, this issue with motion tracking data that you don't know the play, that's baked into watching tape. And, and it's really interesting to draw that connection, that underneath, at a deeper level, this is the same, the same process with the same issues. And it's just a finer level of granularity and and more automatic. Dean, I'm curious. I think you know. I, I I work with some teams, but not that many teams. I don't know the range of things that teams are doing with these data. But so my my understanding is that the NFL teams are kind of they're holding off on this because they think it's going to be an arms race. That some teams don't want the full release of the data because they fear that now everyone has to hire people and sign consultants and spend all this money, and there, nobody will have an edge. They just will spend a bunch of money. Um, meantime, they have this one side of the ball feed. If you were working for one of these teams, what do you think the most interesting analyses are that they could do, given that they only have one side? Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of the best things you can do are with two sides, and what you can prepare for is you can prepare for both sides of the ball. Is You can take the data that you have on your own team and try to take that outside perspective. Okay, how would we evaluate the plays that we're running? How often do we run this kind of thing and run that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. How, um, what can we determine about uh, speed off the ball? Mm-hmm. How, how quickly does uh, a wide receiver break? How quickly can we, can we assess how quickly um, our defensive backs recognize whether it's our defensive backs and linebackers recognize whether it's a run or a pass because we have timing. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of timing elements, and as long as the timing with the, the player tracking is pretty good, you can get some measure of that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, they talk about linebackers. The the, the great linebackers typically I mean, the ones that get lauded for this are the, like the undersized guys. Who is the Texas Tech linebacker that played for Miami? Zach Thomas. Yeah, an undersized guy, but everyone talks about his instincts. He just he anticipates the play and moves so quickly. I I hadn't thought about how well you could identify that, even with just one side of the ball uh, for for linebackers, that second line of the defense. And it's it's hard. I mean, I've had some conversations where you talk about what are the responsibilities of linemen, uh, of linebackers. Some of them 
their their responsibility is to recognize that play right away. But then some other ones may their responsibility may be no. We don't really want you to bite. If you have right. doubts, you're in pass coverage. Right. And that again is from an outsider perspective. I don't know how you necessarily know that, but you can present you can present the data. Uh, linebacker A responds much more quickly than linebacker B. Mm-hmm. Internally, they may know why. Externally, you may not, and you, there may be other work that you have to do. Mm-hmm. So, Dean, uh, this is Eric again. Do you see this as an opportunity for what I, I call it, and I think a lot of people call it data fusion, where we've got the motion tracking data that is then fused in some way with subjective uh, people watching the tape. And so you could imagine trying to either infer what the play was or maybe motion tracking doesn't replace the eyeball tests, but there's a way to fuse them together to come out with a better evaluative system now that in some sense, as Cade said, you have it's not answering a different problem motion data. You just have better ways to measure it, but there's still something gained from the eyeball. Do you see them working hand in hand or one replacing the other? I've always seen them as hand in hand. I, I, I was raised watching. I, I used the eyeball test for a long time before my math skills got caught up. In some ways, I think if you don't use both, you miss out on a significant fraction. Mm-hmm. I think my eyes lead me to analyses that I wouldn't have thought to do, and mm-hmm. analyses lead me to looking at the game in ways that I hadn't thought to look at. Mm-hmm. 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 Dean, can you give us an example? It's, a, it's catching a cold, and you've probably got a lifetime of these examples. But what is an example of your eyes leading you to an analysis you, that 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 you, you didn't have in your model? Something you were missing in your model? Uh, that well, in basketball, it's been a constant process. You're right. That that's always happened. Um, understanding what defense is, uh, for instance, when you when I've looked at at players and what they're doing. The guys who just lock and trail going around screens and everything, their ability to just deny a good shot forces you to ask a question. Okay, how many players are out there that do actually allow fewer good shots or Mm -hmm. fewer shots, period, Mm -hmm. Uh, layups? And that kind of um, back and forth goes constantly happens because you may find that oh well it looks like he's allowing a lot of shots but oh wait a second those are transition and he's the point guard he's always back in transition so how do you get that out and then do you go and look at the game a little bit differently um how many of those transition opportunities is because the point guard waited too long to actually engage the ball Mm -hmm. and you look at that visually and then is there a way to pull that back out of the player tracking. So it's constant back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, teams, I, I wanted to ask you for an illustration of that because especially on this show, we're analysts, analytics heavy. Analysts need to be reminded that, you know, the models are imperfect and we want, it's not just persuading uh, non-analysts to use the data, but it's also mining their expertise to improve the analytics. And teams grapple with this big time. I mean, the baseball teams are evaluating players. The, you know, the money ball scene is an exaggeration, but that tension still exists in many clubs. And one of the ways it's best navigated is if the analyst says, look, this is a model we think is good, but it can be improved by what you're seeing with your eyes and your 25 years experience. And the best organizations are having that dynamic back and forth where the analysts are changing their model based on hypotheses that they get from the scouts. And they usually don't say the word hypothesis, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and the smart analyst doesn't offer that word, right? Because that's not gonna that's not gonna work as well out there. 
Uh, you speak basketball when you're working in basketball. That's right. That's right. Well, um, Dean, what you said, the other thing you said up top was quarterback decision making. And that's, that's an interesting one. And that, that's something that we, we see with our eyes all the time, right? We see with our eyes that we think that with different quarterbacks differ on that dimension. How are you thinking about it? What are you doing on that front? I think this is one of the hardest things uh, that's out there. And I will say we're at the formative stages of, of really just thinking about how it goes about. And a lot of times that's what, when I watch a game, I think, okay, what is the quarterback doing? What is a check down? And so you're sitting a lot of times uh, a quarterback's first read is they look downfield, they have a first option that they were going to. Now there may be like wide receiver screens, that kind of stuff. But a lot of times they're looking downfield and they're looking for someone who's going to get them the eight yards they need for a first down. And they look at a couple options, and if it's not there, they back up. So you And the defense understands this. They're trying to take away what's deeper, what's riskier, and they'll give up some of the shorter things. So uh, ultimately, when some of that uh, tracking data is evolved, you can start looking at, at some of the downfield receivers and whether they're open and whether the quarterback sees them, targets them, mm-hmm. and then basically understand their train of thought in what hopefully is the logical way to do it, that they, they go from the deeper receivers to the shorter receivers in some progression. That's not going to be what they do all the time, but it's something that makes some sense. When you don't know what they're supposed to do again from the outside perspective, you take what makes some sense and assume that it's it's reasonably correlated. So, so Dean, you're saying that, so an example, let me simplify that too, simplify, too, too much, but let me, let me just see if I understand what you're saying. You're saying in a perfect world, you would understand two things about a route that's being run. One, how deep it is and how well it's covered. And if you knew that about the three or four routes that were being run at a given time, and you knew who the QB actually dumped the ball off to, you could model a QB's proclivity to go to the deepest open route, which is what you'd want, right? As opposed to the guys who were too quickly dumping things off. Am I thinking about that right? Uh, Yes. How often do they go to the the deepest route that they can actually throw? Because sometimes they may have a a deep sideline receiver after three seconds. uh, He he may not be all that well covered, but I'm not sure I can make that throw. But that's a that's an indictment as well. You want to know that that's one reason some of those guys don't don't go there, right? Because they don't they know they don't have the arm for it. Wow. So I think that's a a great idea. It's like a very well articulated problem, and maybe hard to you know to implement because you need the data to say a couple things. And as you say, you don't know for sure what the priorities are. But if you take as a given, they want they prefer to go deeper when possible. Um, that's a that's a that's a very well-defined problem that would reveal something important about QBs. Yeah, so Dean, this is Eric. I love this analysis, but I just a follow-up question. And um, Cade used the word priorities. I was I was sitting here thinking a different mathematical word, which is myopic versus longer-range thinking. So imagine a quarterback intentionally doesn't throw it to a 10-yard open receiver because he's trying to set someone up on the next play. How do we bring in what I'll call the long-range strategy versus, you're right, receiver, you know, receiver comes back to the huddle. I was open. The quarterback goes, listen, I wasn't throwing you the ball there because I think we have a 40-yard get on this guy on the next play. Is there any way that that second-level type of thinking, or, or is this purely going to be play-by-play, myopic optimization, and that's the analysis we're going to do? Uh, I think the, the question is great. It's um, something that in football I think we're going to start off with 
the, the myopic, the short-term uh, view. And then over time, you, you can start getting at some of the game theory, which what you're talking about is, okay, we'll, we'll make them think we didn't see it, but then down the road, we'll take advantage of that. That's been happening in basketball to some degree, too. And at least in basketball, there are ways to, to handle that. You can do some game theory kind of optimization. You'll give up some of this in order to take away some of that. And assuming they know what you want to do, how much do you adjust? And that is, it's hard and you can't do it for every situation, um, especially without all the data that you would want, but uh, you can do some of it. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to Dean Oliver. Dean is a pioneer in sports analytics, of course, especially on the basketball side, but it's always interesting to hear him talk because his interests go beyond basketball into, into football. He is currently vice president of data at true media. He has spent time with ESPN and a number of NBA teams. Dean, how is it you decide what to work on? And and to what what where is, do you have more passion in one direction or the other, basketball or football, or is it time of year? And what other sports are out there that you're that you're playing with? Oh, how do I decide what I work on? Um, is that's that gets complicated. But of course, I love football. I love basketball. I grew up. Um, with the major sports, the football, baseball, basketball. Baseball, fortunately, has been handled very well by a lot of people, Bill James, Pete Palmer, and a, uh, a legion of tremendous people for, yep. for years since yep. then. Um, I, I read their stuff as much as I can. But, um, yeah, certainly football is very fertile right now. There's a lot to think about, um, even if, if some of that data isn't easily available. There's a lot to think about, and the more I think about the problems, the more I, I can't wait till data becomes fully available. But um, basketball is is where I I know I still have an advantage. I have a lot of things that I've done that uh, I would love to to follow up on. Beyond these these sports, uh, I haven't done a lot with hockey. Hockey is something that uh, I wasn't exposed to a lot until my last couple of years of high school when I was in Michigan. So I didn't get exposed to it a lot. My wife is Brazilian, so I get exposed to soccer all the time. Oh, wow. And I I think there's a lot that can be done in soccer. We, we talk about it at True Media a fair amount. We have, we've done a lot of work with some of the data on the soccer side. So I imagine that we will do more down the road for sure. Dean, can I stop you there and get an update from you on that front? Um, I happen to have dinner with a couple of buddies last night, a couple of whom are big soccer guys, play soccer, follow soccer, and they're you know PhD academics but not hardcore analysts. And they were asking about the state of analytics in soccer, and and in particular they were they were curious about the opportunities. Do you think it's sufficient? And I'm, you know how it is. If you're not in the field, you underestimate how much expertise is actually going on in there. But it is newer than the other sports. Do, what do you consider to be the opportunity in analytics in soccer right now? I think uh, models need to be built uh, well in, in soccer. And this is a challenge throughout all sports, but it's, it's in, in soccer big time right now. We're getting, there is more data available in soccer. Uh, there's definitely uh, the optic tracking where they track location of a lot of things on the ball and such like that. And it's great. Um, models haven't been built with even that um, set of data. What do you and mean? For, what do you mean by model, Dean? A model for how the game should work. Um, so what what happens when it's when a team is passing the ball around the perimeter, 
away from the goal and such. What are they attempting to accomplish? Mm -hmm. There has been a metric done where, given the location of the ball and various other aspects, there's an expected goals. And that is useful. Uh, It's kind of a currency, but it's not necessarily a model of what you should be doing. Okay. And so where are there combinations of things that you can do to increase your expected goal? And what are what is the defense? Where is the offside line? If the offside line is closer versus farther, right. how much can you do to increase those kind of things, uh, that expected goals? That model hasn't really been built. Yeah, Dean, I love this question that Kate asked you for the following reason. I think I watch tons and tons of sports, lots of different sports, also from an analytics perspective. I think of all sports, and please tell me if you disagree with this, soccer is one of those sports where you don't want to get caught in what's, you know, we call as mathematicians, engineers, local maximum. Like, if all you did was do every play to maximize the expected number of goals, and this is your point, you would see play changing in a very bad way. Soccer, you may take a backward expected goal step because you're trying to maximize it at some point later in the play. Would you agree with that, that that's why soccer needs – that's exactly your point? Yeah, I think that's a good way of stating it, too, better than I could have stated it. I like it. So that sounds really hard to do. <laughs> who's gonna, Who's doing that? Who's going to do it? What's required in order to build that kind of model? Oh, well, I'm a little biased. I am an engineer, and I, I feel like engineering processes teach you not just the, the statistical approach. They teach you a little bit about how systems work. And certainly my background in environmental engineering, which you did mention, most people don't mention that, um, is uh, you end up dealing with models, resistance models, and, and how – um, in the case of groundwater, how the ground actually impedes the motion of water, and it has to go around it. And so what it ends up doing, you try to find the easiest path for water to get there. And I could say that is a model that potentially could be applied to, to soccer. You're not necessarily trying to go through the rock. That's the most direct way, but you can go around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, to some degree, I think the the physics are built into some of the environmental models I had. Can we take that and adapt it to, to soccer mm-hmm. and other, and frankly, other sports? Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about using techniques and analytics that we're, we're just not using right now. What, what, if you were to advise someone who's going to get into that field or even, you know, an analyst who just wants to get into analytics more generally, in the past would have told them, you know, go, you know, gear up on some stats program, learn how to do regressions. It, it feels like all the questions we've been talking about for the last half hour, the, the ones that you really feel are ripe, are involving techniques that are much more complicated than we've worked with historically. What, what, would you, what, what, what techniques are you trying to add to your repertoire right now? What do you think it's important for analysts who are moving into the field to have in their repertoire? I do think, um, I've always said it's kind of five tools in order to, to get in uh, and do things. And one is just working with data and database, just understanding what the data is. Uh, there's statistics, yes. Uh, statistics are great. You Really, to do projections and to do some prescriptive work, you want to work with, with stats. Uh, programming, obviously, is going to help. There's a lot of uh, the programming and, and stats world have this machine learning stuff that's going on right now, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is, is very applicable. I think it gets – I think there's different – 
levels, though, at which some of these things get applied. And I think if you apply them too early before you kind of understand what the experts, what the coaches right. in any sport are saying, right. you can you can get to some conclusions that are wrong. Um, and I think it means it, you really do want to take what those coaches say and build what they're saying, a model of what they're saying, and then apply some of these tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a skill of being able to translate between a mathematical world and a coaching world that uh, I think is very hard to build. Yep. Um, but I think those people will be very valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dean, we've only got a, a few minutes left with you, and I'm curious on the on the fan side. I, I do you lean you, you you've got some passion for football and it's a it's a that time of year. Do you lean towards college or pro? Who, what are you most paying attention to right now on, on the field? I'm paying much more attention to the pros. These That's days. what I, I, uh, I. I in my time at ESPN, we did a lot of, of college football, and I think we did a lot of good things there. They have some of the stuff that that comes about right now in evaluating who should be in the playoff, the the four team playoff versus uh, who is best. Yep. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. And I think we provided a lot of tools for that. You've changed the conversation. I mean, people talk about FPI and SOR. You created SOR, as far as I know. And FPI is, yep. I mean, we, we we believe Massey Peabody is as good as it gets. We think our only peer is FPI. And um, I think it's because we think about it. When you talk to the guys, you guys, you guys are going about it the same way. Anyway, to, and, and the thing about it is, now people are using those terms. I mean, people are referring to those metrics, and it's made a big difference in the conversation. Seriously, okay. So you've got that, but you're saying, yeah, maybe did it beat it, did it beat the college football out of you? And now you're thinking about pro. Uh, nothing beats it out of me. It's more a matter of time. Uh, I think with college football, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to watch. I think the NFL you know, got 32 teams and that's enough games to watch yeah uh, it just and kind of have to and pick a frankly, day right one time with my family yeah you pick a day the week am i going to take pick a day I, I i hear you on that all together so on the pro side what 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 do you how are you feeling about the season is it is this new england philadelphia thing inevitable what what what's most likely to upset that what do you what are you interested in uh football does not have well, there's, the main inevitable thing over the last decade or more has been the Patriots, and one of those reasons why, if they maybe if they put more data out there, some of these teams may be able to figure out what the Patriots do. But right. as much as good as the Eagles are, as well as they're playing, uh, I think they know, and I think a lot of teams know that the playoffs, all it's single elimination, and it's not as though the Eagles are um, doing everything perfect. And they, you can beat them. There have been really good teams that have gone into the playoffs and, and lost. And uh, I think that's possible with them for sure. Uh, it, and what you, what happens in the NFL and football in general is you learn every week. If you've got 16 weeks, that's not a lot. And you're still in the learning curve. If you study the Eagles every week, you're figuring things out for how to beat them. Right, right, right. They, they do seem that they respond so quickly, the NFL. There's, and, People see one team use something that's effective against uh, an opponent in week two, and they use it in week five. It's just ridiculous how quickly learning travels across the league. What, what, using your, uh, you know, the way you think about the game and the numbers you look at, is there some way that you're thinking about the league this year or a team this year that you think the casual fan might not be? 
I think what's interesting is that it's been progressively more offensive league for many years now, uh, obviously throwing the ball more. What's interesting about this year is that they're still throwing the ball a lot, but I think the defense has caught up. I, we There's these parallel narratives that you talk about the offensive line, can't block anymore, and there is a lot of truth in that. One of the things that we have seen is that the offensive line is really struggling to block for these quarterbacks. And the defense has had not the upper hand, but they've they've gained back some of what they've lost in the last couple of years. And I think that is that is interesting through um, deceptive pass rush techniques as well as just okay. better, really good athletes on that defensive line. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it it is fascinating about sports, the back and forth, right? The equilibrium that you, it really feels like inevitable that one's going to outpace the other, but here comes here comes the other side. So you're saying it's not just it's so easy to put it on the athletes, right? Because you see these guys, these defensive linemen, these edge rushers. I mean, my gosh, what are you supposed to do? But you're saying it's not just athleticism, that there's something about techniques. So what, give, can you give us an example of these deceptive pass rushes you think are making a difference? What was the one we were looking at the other day? There was one where um, the uh, defensive line, it was there were six blockers and there were four pass rushers. So the offensive line should have had a major advantage. But mm-hmm. what the fourth pass rusher did is it looked like he was in a spy position. He just kind of he didn't pass rush in the first second. So the all the offensive line took the other three pass rushers, mm-hmm. and then he goes mm-hmm. and he has a direct route to the quarterback. Right. <laughs> just because he delayed, and I'm sure there's a miscommunication. Yeah. But that kind of delay, where it looks like you're not coming. One second is a huge amount of time in the NFL, right. and it can make a huge difference. But if it creates this direct line to the quarterback, um, that's a nice deceptive practice that, okay, it'll work once, and maybe it'll work a second time if you change where it comes from. They adapt, but that sort of technique um, can work for a variety of plays in a game. And, shoot, you get a couple of those, it does – we talked about lingering effects. Quarterbacks, when they get hit, they do show some uh, decline following that. Absolutely. And you can't, you can't blame them, right? You can't blame them. Listen, nope. Dean, we have to hop. We really appreciate your joining yep. us on the show, and we, and we appreciate the work that you're doing. We, we wish you the best with it. All right. Thanks, guys. You bet. That was Dean Oliver. Dean is vice president of data at True Media. Of course, he's done work with ESPN and other, or other organizations for a long time, including a number of NBA teams. You can follow Dean on Twitter. I suggest you do. Dean, oh, Dino underscore Lytics, at Dino underscore Lytics. That was Dean Oliver. And that is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball this morning. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting the show this morning with my buddy, collaborator, faculty colleague Eric Bradlow Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner are away but they will be back and some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning 8 to 10 you can join the conversation give us a ring you have 20 minutes or so to give us a ring 1-844-WHARTON that's 1-844-942-7866 Matty Datz producer boss man on the phone waiting for you he's also watching email businessradio at sirusxm.com businessradio at sirusxm.com if you want to email Matt you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall. Oh, and Danielle Bruno, that was her bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, as she does every half hour. Sound engineer keeps this thing running. 
Much appreciated from Danielle. We are just off the phone with Dean Oliver. How about that, Dean Oliver? Good Lord. He can bring it, can't he? Well, I loved what he was talking about, about taking, let's call it, uh, theoretical models. Like he was talking about water flow. But, you know, water finds the lowest place, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily take the shortest path. And that's why I like that analogy between that and soccer, which is the shortest path to the goal may not actually be the path that maximizes the strategy for the game. And mm-hmm. theories, like w- theories of water flow, these ideas can be applied if one thinks just one level higher to sports. So I loved that comment, and I actually thought the analogy was a perfect one. Well, and his, his point isn't that the right model for soccer is right. water resistance and physics. It was, this is a model, and if you're trained in engineering or some other field that might be relevant, you have these models, and it's helpful to consider various models for the problem. Well, another way to think about it in soccer is, why does a person, a player, female or male, pass the ball backwards when they could pass it forwards? Well, the path of least resistance might actually be at that time to pass it backwards. Mm-hmm. If you were to pass it forward, yes, you'd be closer to the goal, but there's also an increased probability the pass gets stolen. So just like thinking in that conceptual way, I think can say a lot about strategies for sports. I loved the comment. Absolutely. And we're lucky. I'm just you know, talking to Jerry in the first, Jerry Palm in the first guest slot, and then, and then Dean in the second. Fun, fun, fun morning. Eric, I know that you're always intrigued with what's going on with Tiger Woods, and he's apparently going to come back and play for the first time in a while this weekend. Yeah, I mean, if you want to call it playing, I guess. Um, he's playing in well, the— we'll find out, right? Well, no, no, no. I didn't mean by that. He's going to be playing. I meant that he's playing in this 18-person kind of invitational tournament where there's no cut, so he will be playing four rounds. Yeah. Um, the reason he's in it is because it's kind of his tournament, so he kind of invited himself. But, yes, there will be a lot of the top—I top, think all the top ten players in the world are there and five or so, obviously six or seven other players. I'm just interested to see— how he plays when, you know, the lights go on. Um, He says he's feeling healthy. Um, But it's kind of an unprecedented thing in golf. Um, We've never really had someone who hasn't played really much golf at all in three years. Um, You know, people say, well, he's at 14 majors. Okay, I'm pretty sure that his last major win was in 2008. So it's been nine years. Um, It's been three years since he's won any tournament in the world. And so... We're talking really about just an unprecedented layoff due to injury. It's not even just a layoff like he decided to retire because he was healthy, but he's doing so great and come back. We're talking about an injury-based period of years that has basically taken him you know, out of the elite. So, and, so Eric, if, if people aren't following it, they may not realize because he's been down for so long and, he's, and it's been, there's been so much controversy around him. There's just been nothing good out of the Tiger camp in a while. The reports right now are actually quite positive. They think something's different about this thing. They say he's a twinkle in his eye. They say he's hitting his driver well. What, how would you analyze, where would you put the odds of his playing decent golf this weekend? Well, let's just remember, um, one of the tournaments he played in the last three years was this event last year. And I love your question because it talks about metrics of performance. Is total score what matters? Maybe. Last year, he played this tournament against the top players in the world. He led the tournament in birdies. He also, <laughs> he also led the tournament in double bogeys. Yeah, right. So the question is, how do you measure what's going well for Tiger? Now, they've given, given snippets. He's, played, he's been playing practice rounds with Dustin Johnson, the number one player in the world. Who everybody knows, big, long hitter. According to others, 
half the time he's out driving Dustin Johnson and half the time... Now, that already might say something to some people to say, you know, he's blasting at 320 again. This seems like the the, the injured Tiger wouldn't be able to do that. I would like to see four rounds and no truly awful rounds. In some sense, I will evaluate Tiger's performance not by his minimum score, but by his maximum score. Mm -hmm. And so I want to see, can he shoot four rounds, let's call it, below 73? Mm -hmm. Can he shoot 73 or better Mm -hmm. in four rounds? Can he do that? Because Mm -hmm. I think even when Tiger starts playing more and more, you will see tournaments like this. He shoots 68, 75, 72, 70, and the one round where he shoots 75 and everybody else shoots 70 takes you out of the tournament. Right. That's what, it's the maximum score I'm interested in. Interesting. Another sport we don't talk about much this time of year is NHL, but it looks like a few teams are doing kind of unusual things so far. Something caught your eye in NHL? Yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm not I don't follow hockey that much except I was looking at two teams, Tampa Bay and St. Louis. Um, when I looked at them, um, it looked like they were essentially, if you look at Tampa Bay right now, they've played 24 games and they have 36 points. So that's a point and a half a game. Even I can do that math, right? <laughs> now, what would that mean for the entire season? Well, you play 80 games, a point and a half times 80 is 120. I'm pretty sure 120 points, if that were to hold in an NHL season, is a pretty big number. That's not a number you see all the time. Matter of fact, a lot of times getting over 100 is kind of the mile. Milestone, And we're talking about uh, Tampa Bay and St. Louis that seem to be tracking towards 120. So I was just commenting that it seems like there's some extraordinary performance. And it started to make me think about, like, are we starting to see this time in sports where there's the haves and the have-nots? If you like, we talk in, you know, in, in business all the time about the Herfindahl Index, like the distribution of win shares. Or in, our, in business, it's market shares. So hold on. Say, Herfindahl is used a lot. It's, good, it's a good term to be familiar with. Say a little bit more about what the Herfindahl is. Right. So what you do is let's imagine you have five companies, and let's say you have their market share. Obviously, those market shares add to one by definition. If you take the square of each firm's market share, that's how you think about the Herfindahl Index. So, for example, let's imagine, let's take the simple example, two firms, one with 80% market share and one with 20% market share. If you take 0.8 squared, that's 0.64, 0.2 squared, that's 0.04, 0.8 squared plus 0.2 squared is 0.68. That would be the Herfindahl Index. It's the sum of the squares of the market and, shares. And what that's trying to get at is how concentrated the market share is. Exactly. So could we do a similar thing? We could for sports. So we look at win shares. And now what we do is we compute the sums of squares. And it would be fascinating to track that over time to see if there's more bifurcation or, if we'd like, concentration of win it's shares. Like the opposite of parity. Exactly. In, in some ways. And some people would say, I mean, we'll get, we're going to get to the NFL, I know, but some would say in basketball... How many teams really have a chance to win the NBA title? I think most people would say, at best, at best, there's four teams right now. Right. At best. And Cleveland, de- uh, Cleveland and the Celtics in the East. And we're saying the Celtics even without Gordon Hayward. And maybe the Rockets and the Warriors out West. Now, Eric, you know, we tend to bemoan that about the NBA right now. But, you know, in, in, our, in our adolescence... There were some great series year after year. You know, it was Lakers and Celtics for a while. And I don't know, and I'm not sure how closely it was tracked back then, what the expected, you know, probabilities were, what the probabilities for expected titles were back then. Do you think it's that much more concentrated now than it was in the mid-80s when the Lakers and Celtics kind of ran everything? 
No, I don't think it's more concentrated now. I think there were a couple. I mean, remember the Celtics at that time did have to get past the Sixers and the, for and, a number and, of and years. The Pistons and the well, that was later on. Those were two separate eras. There was okay. never the era, at least at that time, where the Sixers were good and the Pistons were good. Let's call it the first half of the '80s was more the Sixers dynasty. The second half of the '80s was more the Pistons. The Celtics just happened to be good because of Larry Bird for that entire time. So they were fighting two different uh, foes. The Lakers at that time had to get past the Rockets at certain times were teams. No, I don't. I think if you go back to the 80s, there were probably no more than four teams that most people would have said would have won the NBA Finals so we, at any given time. We, there's another 538 analysis we want. We want Herfindahl's on, on title probabilities in the NBA over the last 40 years. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating. Again, just maybe finishing the thought with the NBA. Um, to me, of all the thing that's caught my eye in sports in the NBA this year, there's one number. So if I told you, here are four teams, and you can take any one of these teams. I'll leave off the names for a second. There's one team that gives up 109 points a game, defensively, 109. There's another team that gives up 107. There's another team that gives up 104. And there's another team that gives up 97. Which would you take? 97 in a heartbeat. Big R- difference. Right. <laughs> 97 is the Boston Celtics. 109 is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh. 107 is the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, but... I, I understand. They also put up 117. <laughs> and Houston puts up gives up 103, 104. But that one number... Boston giving up less than 97 points a game yeah, is it's, just, it's sticking with me that, like, wow, if they say defense plays, well, 97 points a game is what, matter of fact, they're the only team in the East giving up less than 100 points yeah, a game, and their gap is actually, I'm just looking here quickly, is like five or six points a game less than any other team any, in the any, East. Anytime you get that much separation, it's a real advantage. So let me give you another NBA number. Where This is from at Deuce of Wands. A listener this morning at Deuce of Wands suggests there's another NBA number that's interesting going all the way back to our first half-hour conversation. 825 career games. That's the number that Walt Frazier played without a single technical foul. I don't know how you do that. Um, maybe, well, I mean, what, here's one theory. One is, you know, Clyde Frazier, obviously, since I grew up in New York, Walt, huge, Walt yeah, Walt Frazier, nickname was Clyde, big Knicks fan growing up. Um, obviously, he played a little bit before my time. Um, one is he's got a great demeanor. He's always calm on the court. That's one possibility. Another one is we just have to look at the base rate of technical fouls. But still, 825 is extraordinary. In fact, you and I were talking the break. We violated our rule of talking the break. <laughs> Which one's more impressive? No technicals for Walt Frazier for 825 games or never fouling out for LeBron James for 1,200. And we both agree it's not even close. Zero technicals in 825 games. Um, That may be my new Cal Ripken Iron Man streak. I don't think a guy, I don't think a player today could go 82 games without getting a technical foul and he's gone 825. Well, he he was a, he was a great player and I I just, I, I, he was before my time to watch. I didn't know he must have been a real gentleman on the court to have to have played that much without a technical. Even if he was given the benefit of the doubt, you don't get that much. You don't but let me just ask, add one other thing to that. One could argue maybe zero technicals is not actually the optimal number. We haven't oh, yeah. talked about that, but maybe at some point you have to make, you know, this is kind of the short run, long run discussion we had with Dean Oliver as well. Maybe he would have been better off by getting a technical or two at some point in time to get the refs more towards his side or paying attention. But anyway, it's an interesting discussion for every show we have, short run versus long run optimization. Right. So we're moving back to football. Before we get to NFL, 
the college games this weekend? Anything you're especially five big Power Five conference championships. There are some Group of Five championships, but clearly the eyes on the Power Five. Anything you're especially fired up about? If well, just go. Th- I'll go through them all quickly. If you had told me three weeks ago that Auburn would be favored against Georgia, I would have said. How is that going to happen? Right. And so that caught my eye. Um, Ohio. So it's a, sm- it's a small thing. It's two and a half points. I understand that. We, we would make it a messy Peabody makes it a toss up. But, uh, and, you know, Atlanta kind of, I mean, the games in Atlanta, it's a bit of a home field advantage for, for Georgia. But I'm surprised at the two and a half point line. Yeah. And the other, just to, maybe I'll go through two more. One, Ohio State being six and a half. I think Ohio State's going to win by more than six and yeah, a half. I that sec- number I seems that. quite low to me. And also, no respect for Miami and maybe deservedly so. Clemson's a nine and a half point favorite. Um, I mean, that gets to the area where we're talking about eighty percent plus win percentage, and th- yes, I, I think I agree with that. It just, you know, now that I see it on paper, wow, Clemson's really almost a ten point favorite against Miami. That seems like a big number. Well, you know, the thing about Miami, they went undefeated for a long time. They were they were in the national conversation for most of the season, still are, and you forget. They're, they're, you forget, you know, they may not be that great a team. They were, they were barely winning games. They didn't play that much of a schedule. Right. I see Massey Peabody has about 11.2, 11.2 points if it were on a and, neutral field. And, and the point is, we think Miami's the 17th best team in the country. So we, we forget that. Whenever you pay that much attention for that long and a team is undefeated for that long, you start forgetting that underneath that they may not be as good as they look. And, I, and, and I, by the way, now that I've seen them play against Pitt and I've seen, now that you point out the games they won closely, you may be optimistic that they're the 17th best team in the nation. Wow, wow. Well, Clemson, that's why we think Clemson is the most likely team to make the playoff because they have the easiest this track game, here. Absolutely. And, of course, that, that Georgia-Auburn game is going to be great fun. So this is the time of the show. We like to turn our eyes to the NFL. So, Eric, we haven't talked a lot of NFL so far, and it's a time of year where the NFL is ever more interesting. Let's first look around the, the, the matchups this weekend and see if anything you think is especially interesting, you're excited about, or you think any edges out there to be had. Well, this is a week where actually there are a lot of really interesting games. A lot of really interesting games. A lot of weeks we're searching, like, wow, all these games seem bad. In I'll go in no particular order except what's listed on the sheet here. Why don't we start with Vikings at Falcons? I mean, you want to talk about a crucial, crucial game and matchup, Vikings at Falcons. I mean, the Vikings played the Rams last week and shut down the newest, greatest show on turf, if you'd like, although they don't play on turf. Um, I think the Vikings at Falcons is a really, really interesting game this week. It's obviously, um, as an Eagles fan, I'm obviously rooting for the Falcons in that game because we want the Eagles to end up with the one seed in the NFC. I believe the Vikings, I don't believe, I think the Vikings are 9-2 and two at the moment. And so any time one of the people the Eagles are playing or could face in the one seed or getting a loss. So to me, the game that caught my eye the most was Vikings at Falcons. We're going to see how good that Vikings defense is. Can they go into Atlanta and shut down the, remember, the NFC champions, who one could argue could have won the Super Bowl, can they go in there and the Falcons are starting to win games again? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're 7-4. and four. It's a crucial game. If the Falcons fall to 7-5, and five, this is another point just for our Moneyball listeners, There are seven teams right now, not six, who make the playoffs. There are seven teams in the NFC right now with a 7-4 and record or better. 
there could be a 10 or certainly there's even the remote possibility of an 11 win team in the NFC this year not making the playoffs an 11 win team not making the playoffs well in the AFC an 8 and 8 team may make the playoffs so uh best people massy people to make those teams 6 and 7 best teams in the in the in the league right next to each other so a good a good NFC face off there uh, the kind of the marquee game it's kind of clearly the Eagles at Seahawks right so Eagles are one of the top two teams in the in the league right now Seattle still a top five and has been perennially for the last five years they have to go to Seattle it's a good test for Philadelphia that line is five points I'm surprised that Philadelphia goes on the road to Seattle and they're a five-point favorite I mean you you would have Seattle as a one-point favorite in uh, I mean because Eagles are favored by roughly two and a half on a neutral field but maybe it's pick them but you see that as a a pretty much misaligned game with yeah. the Eagles minus five. That's a that's a that's a big difference in the spread. We, that's a that's a good edge there. For, we 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 like Seattle on that one. And let me just say, by the way, Seattle's one of those seven and four teams like the Falcons that are right now. One of the two of them's in the playoffs at seven and four, and one of mm-hmm. them isn't. Mm-hmm. That's why both of those games really should be our money ball matchups because these are two good seven and four teams that right now with a loss if the season ended, would be sitting outside the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Those are two absolutely crucial games. And the other game, just as an NFC South guy, is Panthers at Saints. I mean, there's another game. We have two 8-3 and three teams. Those are 8-3 and three teams potentially fighting for the division and for home field, which, as we know, you know, using the Shane Jensen coin-flipping model, not only does home field matter, but what really matters is one less game. This may determine who is still in line for a one or two seed. So this is, if you want to talk about win probabilities for the Super Bowl, you could make an argument that the Panthers at Saints is actually the most influential game this week towards getting a bye. Interesting. It's somewhat. It's, I think it's fun to have New Orleans back at the top of the at the top of the rankings. We show them number three, and it's just been a while since they've been up there. Uh, th- that covers the NFC really well. Is there anything not going on in the AFC? What about the other side? Well, uh, there's not a massive game, but prickly Patriots at Bills. Uh, you say, well, that's a meaningless game. I mean, well, no. The Patriots and Steelers are fighting for the one seed, and the, because of the putridness of the AFC in general, the Bills aren't entirely out of it. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it's Patriots at Bills. That gives a little bit of juice and excitement to mm-hmm. that game in the AFC. Mm-hmm. Eric, just looking around the league and, and probabilities of playoffs and Super Bowls, anything catching your eye other than the New England-Philadelphia leaders on both sides? Um, The strength in the NFC, there are seven teams, Eagles, Vikings, Saints, Panthers, Falcons, Rams, and Seahawks. I could see any of them winning the Super Bowl. That's what's caught my eye. That's a lot of fun. And it sounds like there's a slate this weekend that's going to help start sorting that. You know, there's still plenty of football to play. But um, this is the time of year, especially when these teams are facing off against each other. Seven NFC teams. I think any of them could any of them could win the Super Bowl. Seven NFC teams. Who who, who are you pulling outside of the Eagles? Who do you and outside of your Tampa Bay, who doesn't They're happen done. to be in? Who are you pulling for there? I like to think the Rams. Yeah. Well, really? wow. Why not? Let's 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 see <laughs> the, they, the young coach Jared Goff, the guy they wanted to throw in the trash heap last I'm, year. Let's I'm, see him go win the Super I'm Bowl. I'm holding it against them that they moved out from St. Louis. But that has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We do it live here every Wednesday morning, eight to ten. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Maddie Dats for running the show. Danielle Bruno. Thanks to my co-host Eric Bradlow. Thanks to Shane and Audie for being here in spirit. Thanks to you guys for listening. Come back. Next week, we'll do it again. Until then, enjoy your sports.